please stand with me for the reading of God's word. We're reading from 1 Chronicles 21, verses 1 to 17, and we're dropping down from, to verses 22 through 27. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the army, Go, number Israel from Beersheba to Dan, and bring me a report, that I may know their number. But Joab said, May the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. Are they not, my lord the king, all of them my lord's servants? Why then should my lord require this? Why should it be a cause of guilt for Israel? But the king's word prevailed against Joab. So Joab departed and went through all Israel and came back to Jerusalem. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to David. In all Israel there were 1,100,000 men who drew the sword, and in Judah, 470,000 who drew the sword. But he did not include Levi and Benjamin in the numbering, for the king's command was abhorrent to Joab. But God was displeased with this thing, and he struck Israel. And David said to God, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing. But now please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. And the Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus saith the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and said to him, Thus saith the Lord, Choose what you will, either three years of famine or three months of devastation by your foes, while the sword of your enemy overtakes you, or else three days of the sword of the Lord, pestilence on the land, with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let me fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is very great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel fell. And God sent to the angel Jerusalem to destroy it. But as he was about to destroy it, the Lord saw, and he relented from the calamity. And he said to the angel who was working destruction, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. And David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven, and in his hand a strong sword stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell upon their faces. And David said to God, Was it not I who gave command to number the people? It is I who have sinned and done great evil. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand... O Lord my God, be against me and against my father's house, but do not let the plague be on your people. We're going down to verse 22. And David said to Ornan, Give me the site of the threshing floor, that I may build on it an altar to the Lord. Give it to me at full price, that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Ornan said to David, Take it. And let my lord, the king, do what seems good to him. 
See, I give the oxen for burnt offerings and the threshing sledges for the wood and the wheat for a grain offering. I give it all. But King David said to Ornan, No, but I will buy them for the full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours, nor burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David paid Ornan 600 shekels of gold by wheat for the site. And David built there an altar to the Lord and presented burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the Lord. And the Lord answered him with fire from heaven upon the altar of burnt offering. Then the Lord commanded the angel, and he put his sword back into his sheath. This is the word of the Lord. This is my, my first time back with people in the building, so it's, it's really refreshing to see you guys here, and for everyone joining us on the live stream, we're glad you were with us as well this morning. Um, we're going to be looking at a really interesting passage this morning, um, and we come to a really a key moment in the life of David. In the account of this in 2 Samuel, the writer brings it all the way to the end of the book of 2 Samuel in a way kind of to emphasize just how, just how important this is. But we're mainly going to be looking at the account in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, but if you have a Bible, be ready to kind of flip back and forth between 2 Samuel 24 and 1 Chronicles 21 for the, the two accounts of this story. Let's open up with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this church family. Lord, now we, we pray and we ask that you would speak uh, to our hearts, Lord, to my heart, to everyone's heart listening. And Lord, you know where our hearts are hard and resistant to you. And we pray that your word would fall in those spots, and that your spirit would be at work. We pray that you would speak, uh, not through me, but through your words. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen. Well, this has been, this has been a hard season. And I just read where the CDC said that we're about to face the worst fall we've ever faced. So thanks, CDC. That's very encouraging. Um, but the general, the general vibe I'm feeling, and maybe you're feeling, is just a sense of being worn down. And maybe if you're fortunate like me that you, you haven't gotten sick and you haven't lost family members, we're still, we're still pretty worn down. And for some of us in our church family, we've, we've known those who have lost loved ones, who have lost work, they've lost health, they've lost the ability to leave their house. And when we get worn down by life, we start looking for ways of, of feeling better. And some of these can be good. You know, maybe it's exercise or a, a phone call or a new hobby. But oftentimes the pain inside is a little bit too loud for these good coping strategies. Or at least that's how it feels. And so we, we sometimes find ourselves turning to some darker things. I don't know if you saw this, but there's a new CDC report about the state of the mental health of our country. Listen to some of these facts. It says about one-third of the respondents said that they were experiencing anxiety or depression symptoms. 13% said they had started or increased substance use. 26% said they were experiencing trauma or a stress-related disorder syndrome. The rates of anxiety are about three times higher than they were last year. The rates of depression are about four times higher. 
And the effects of this are most keenly felt on young adults ages 18 to 24, where one researcher said that 63% of them have symptoms of anxiety or depression that they attribute to the pandemic, and nearly a quarter have started or increased their abuse of substances, including drug, drugs, alcohol, and prescriptions to cope with their emotions. That's from the CDC. This is, this is pretty shocking, um, that the, the fear that we feel and the anxiety of, of sickness, getting sick, of, of death, the stress of work, the stress of our home lives. We're all homeschooling now, or a lot of us are. And we feel this mentally, and we start feeling this spiritually in really deep ways. And then from this place of exhaustion and burnout, we, um, we start looking around to find things that make us feel better. And that can open us up to some, some bad decisions. And that is actually where we find King David this morning. He's worn down, and he's making a bad decision. And when we get to this point of the story... Uh, David has just finished up probably the longest and hardest season of his entire life. Here's a quick list of things he's been dealing with. He's dealing with major family problems where a 10-year strike with his son Absalom who starts a civil war against him and who later dies in the conflict, followed by a rebellion of a man named Sheba, followed by a three-year famine, and then, right before this story, a close call in battle where David is almost killed by another Philistine giant named Ishbi Benab. And the other soldiers say, you can't come to the fights anymore, David. They say in 2 Samuel 21, 17, David's men swore to him, you shall no longer go out with us in battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. They're saying, you're too important to uh, risk your life fighting giants anymore. You're too old. You're too valuable. Stay home, David. So David... We can relate. He's stuck at home. There's no more fighting to distract him. And his thoughts, I think, start racing. Perhaps he's remembering a close call with death. Perhaps he just is wanting to feel better. And so he decides to take this census. And if we remember the Bathsheba incident in David's life as the sin of idleness where David should have been at battle but wasn't, and made a bad decision and fell into sin, I think we could remember the census story as the sin of, of David's, in David's life of burnout, where he's trapped, he's facing a lot of negative emotions, and he makes a terrible choice. He makes a terrible choice. Thankfully, David doesn't stay in this sin. He turns back to God, and the story, as we read, has an amazing ending in worship. But here's the big question I want us to think about this morning, is how do we get from a place of burnout and sin to a place of contentment and worship? So how, do, how can we, like David, get from a place where we're experiencing burnout and sin in our lives to a place of contentment and worship? And David, David took that journey, and I think it's a journey that we all need to learn how to take and really to do it often. So with that being said, let's turn to our passage. And I think right at the beginning of this passage, there's two pretty big questions that we need to, to understand in order to see what's going on here. The first question is, what's so bad about taking a census? Uh, we, we can tell clearly it's bad because, you know, in verse 3, Joab is like, what are you doing, David? And if you have read the story, 
You know Joab's no saint. He's kind of one of David's hitmen. But even he is like, whoa, whoa, David, that's a terrible idea. And Joab's so disgusted with the idea of a census that he won't even finish it. He doesn't do it for the tribes of Levi and Benjamin. He stops it early. He knew it was wrong, but perhaps from our context, it's not so easy to see. You know, there's other censuses in the Bible, and, and there aren't plagues after those, and, you know, our, we take censuses and count. So what is the sin here? Well, in the Old Testament, counting implies ownership. Counting implies ownership. So as you count something, it's almost a way of saying you, you own it. So David is counting his army, and he's saying, this is mine. And there's actually a verse that's helpful for this back in Exodus chapter 30 in the law. Listen to this verse in Exodus 30, verse 11. The Lord says to Moses, When you take a census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there shall be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, a half a shekel. So God is saying, every time you take a census, you need to be reminded whose you are, lest you start thinking that you are your own person, that you are in control. And so every time Israel takes a census, they're supposed to make this token offering to the temple of one half shekel, which was a ransom or a way of reminding them that God is king. And so when David orders this census, he's saying, I'm in charge not God. He's saying, I want to know the strength of my army. I want to rejoice in my accomplishments. And so then census taking is a way of evaluating and trusting in our own provision and not acknowledging that everything we have comes from God. But we know that our security and our hope is not in our own provision. But how often when things get hard, are we tempted to do this? We, we look at our accomplishments for hope. And this is the sin of pride and the sin of counting or census taking. So maybe it's, for some of us, a, a bank account. Or maybe it's a, a degree or a list of achievements or accolades. But where do, where do you and I turn to when we want to bolster our sense of worth? Do we turn to who we are in Christ? Or do we start looking at the things God's giving me and start kind of taking credit for them to feel better about myself? So maybe it's, you know, my family, my job, my friends, my house. We start counting. And if we're honest, we all can do this. So that, to me, is the sin of census taking. It's a way of, of trusting in your own accomplishments and merit and not acknowledging that everything comes from God. So that's the first big question. The second big question is, is David really responsible for this? If you read the two accounts of this, in 1 Chronicles and in 2 Samuel chapter 24, we see there's an apparent discrepancy between the first verses. Because in 1 Chronicles it says, Satan incited David to take a census. But then in 2 Samuel it says, God incited David to take a census. So, which one is it? Uh, this could be an entire sermon. I want to give you some quick truths, though, so we can move forward. Just three, three quick points. I think what the Bible is teaching us here is that at the first level, David is at fault. We freely choose to sin, right? That David, the Bible is clear that we have agency, we're responsible for our choices. 
But then one level up, we see that Satan is allowed to tempt David. The book of James says that God cannot tempt anyone. And we don't think of Satan here as equal and opposite to God, but someone under God's control. So then at the highest level, we see that God is sovereign. He's bringing about his plans. And similar to the book of Job, God allows Satan to test and tempt David. Now, God knew the outcome, and God is bringing about his purposes. And it says in, first Sam, in 2 Samuel that one of the things he's accomplishing is he was trying to punish Israel for their rebellion. But yet God does not tempt or sin. And this is a huge mystery throughout the Bible of God's sovereignty and our responsibility. But I'll just leave it there. And you can, if you have more questions, you can email Gerald about it. So uh, let's move on to the story. Uh, we see that despite Joab's reservations, the census is completed. And then David realizes what he's done. And then a prophet named Gad shows up and says, you can pick your punishment. So look with me at, at verse 11 through 13. So Gad came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Choose what you will, either three years of famine, three months of devastation by your foes, while the sword of your enemies overtakes you, or three days of the sword of the Lord, pestilence on the land, with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David says to Gad, I am in great distress. Let me fall into the hand of the Lord. For his mercy is very great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. So David chooses the mercy of God. He puts his trust and his hope in God, and so the plague comes. And the punishment often with God fits the crime. We see that 70,000 men are struck down perhaps part of the army that David was trusting in. And then at this point, the story gets a little bit wild. It's, it's almost like a capstone class in Old Testament theology where all these threads come together at the same time. So buckle up and let's, let's see what is going on here in this next part of the story. So the, the plague has come. Gad tells David, go to the top of that hill over there and build an altar. And so David and his elders are heading up to the hill, and while they are walking, they are granted this vision of the angel of the Lord with a sword drawn, coming to bring judgment on Jerusalem. Look at verse 16. And David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven, and in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell upon their faces. So let's pause here for just a second. Where are we right now? What is the spot? We find out in 2 Chronicles chapter 3 that this spot is Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah. So then what we have here, if you're starting to piece this together, is we have the angel of the Lord on Mount Moriah, and there's a drawn sword and this has happened before. This has happened before in our story this year. And some of you might have made the connection, but back in Genesis chapter 22, Abraham takes Isaac up Mount Moriah. And Abraham draws his knife. And the angel of the Lord says, stop. And I think God was teaching Abraham something then. 
And I think God is teaching David something here that this is the spot or the place of atonement, the mountain where the sword of God stops and falls on someone else. So then we get to David's prayer in verse 17. And you've got to remember, David is the great Old Testament picture of Messiah, that whenever the later prophets write about Jesus who's going to come and be the Messiah, they say, I'm going to raise up a new David. So David is the picture of Messiah. And then we see in, in verse 17 that David is, is struck and he prays. So let's look at that prayer in verse 17. And David said to God, Was it not I who gave command to number the people? Is it not I who have sinned and done great evil? But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand, O Lord, my God, be against me and my father's house. But do not let the plague be on your people. So what is David praying here? In some ways he's praying, strike the shepherd and spare the sheep. Strike the shepherd and spare the sheep. I will die in their place. And if we know David as a man after God's own heart, this is probably the pinnacle of that. That he, as the messianic king of his people, says, take me instead. And the destruction, it stops. Jerusalem is spared. Some commentators even think that this was actually the first day of the destruction, and it stops early. Um, and so we have these two stories of Mount Moriah. In Genesis 22, we see that God taught Abraham that there would be a substitute, that the Lord will provide a ram. And then here we see God is teaching David that the substitute will look like a messianic king. And so to put it all together, death is coming. Death as a consequence of sin as, and as the effects of sin. But God is holding back the stroke of death for his people by providing an atonement or a substitute. God is going to provide the substitute. And the substitute will be a king like David. So when God sees this display of the gospel played out, the Lord relents and the plague stops before it goes into Jerusalem. And all of this, of course, is pointing us to Christ. And we see that Jesus is the messianic king who comes, who takes the throne of David, and who takes the sword of judgment for his people. That this is a powerful Old Testament vision of this, that David gets to see. Just like God showed Abraham something about his, his grace, God is teaching David something right here. So I want to be mindful of our time this morning and, and move to some conclusions. The first one is, uh, perhaps you already know this, but this is where Solomon builds the temple. This is the spot on the threshing floor of Orna that David buys is where the temple is built. You see this in, chap in chapter 22, verse 1. It says, And David said, Here shall be the house of the Lord, and here shall be the burnt offering for Israel. So David, for the rest of his life, is going to spend his time gathering resources and gold and lumber and preparing because he knows now this is the spot. And David isn't allowed to build the temple, but his son Solomon is going to build it. So we kind of have to think about the question, why? Why is the temple built right here? And I think what God is saying is that God wanted his temple at a place where his atoning love 
was shown. And what God's telling us is that true worship, true worship of God happens and flows from a sacrificial posture of contentment in God. So if you're writing anything down, write this down. True worship flows from a sacrificial posture of contentment in God. That for Abraham and David, they laid it all down on Mount Moriah. They were willing to give it all up. Abraham was willing to lay down his son. David is willing to lay down his life. And God says, I want the temple right there. And so when we have nothing else, when God starts stripping everything away, that's where worship happens. So how does that apply to us? Maybe you find yourself this morning in a really impossible situation. Maybe at your home, so maybe it's a kid, maybe it's a marriage, maybe it's your parents to where you feel like there's no way forward. Worship happens with a sacrificial posture of contentment in God. So that means you are called to trust and obey and not find your hope and your fulfillment in that spouse or that child or that parent's approval but only in what God says about you. Or maybe you feel like your life is a disaster, that you've made so many terrible decisions, and on top of all of that with the pandemic, it's becoming too much for you to bear. Well, so did David. David had blown it here, but God brings him back to a place of worship, and he can bring us back to that as well. And when we have that contentment, that place of contentment at the end of the sacrifice, at the end of the laying down and coming to an end of ourselves, then we're free. We're free to love in that situation that feels impossible to love. We're free to sacrifice and to risk. And ultimately that means we're free to worship. So we're going to end with this last piece here. That sometime before David died, he wrote a song that he said was supposed to be sung uh, at the temple dedication. So he, he wasn't going to get to be there because God said, you've killed too many people, you can't be a part of that. So he's like, all right, I can't go, but I'm going to write a song. And so he wrote a song, and the Bible has given us that song, that uh, after seven years of Solomon building the temple, uh, they finally get to sing this song. And we have it in our Bibles. It's Psalm 30. Psalm 30. And the shocking thing about it is when you read it, it says nothing about a temple. You would expect it to be like, a, look at my amazing temple song. But it's, it's not about that. Not one word about a temple. But listen to what it's about. It's about pride and failure and forgiveness and redemption. It's a song about census taking and finding comfort in our own provision, but then having that ripped away. And it's a song about looking into the face of death and knowing that God has promised to bring you through it. It's a song about waiting and trusting on the mercy of God, laying down the idols that we build our life and our sense of meaning and value on. And, to remind, and it reminds us that we are actually in the hands of God. It starts with lament and it ends with joy. And I think, I think it's a song for us this morning. So I want to close our time together by reading Psalm 30. I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. Psalm 30, a psalm of David, a song for the dedication of the temple. I will exalt you, Lord, for you rescued me. 
You refuse to let my enemies triumph over me. O Lord, my God, I cried out to you for help, and you restored my health. You brought me up from the grave, O Lord. You kept me from falling into the pit of death. Sing to the Lord, all you godly ones. Praise his holy name, for his anger lasts only for a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may last through the night, but joy comes with the morning. When I was prosperous, I said, nothing can stop me now. Your favor, O Lord, made me as secure as a mountain, but then you turned away from me, and I was shattered. I cried to you, O Lord. I begged the Lord for mercy, saying, What will I gain if what will you gain if I die if I sink into the grave? Can my dust praise you? Can it tell of your faithfulness? Hear me, Lord, and have mercy on me. Help me, Lord. You have turned my mourning into joyful dancing. You have taken away my clothes of mourning and clothed me with joy that I might sing praises to you and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give you thanks forever. I think that's an amazing psalm for us today, that we can see our lives and see the hardship and that what we are facing, but we can put our hope and our trust in God and there's joy that can come in any situation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we worship you this morning, Lord. We know that we have come up short and we have looked to so many other things and compared ourselves to so many other people trying to find a sense of worth and of value. Lord, we are hopelessly counters. We count our finances, we count our friends, we count our square footage. Lord, we repent. Our trust is in you, Lord. This year that you've called us to live through and to be a light in, we know it's going to be hard, Lord, but we have put our faith and our hope in you. And whatever comes, Lord, whether it's sickness and all the fear and anxiety that's coming our way and that we're already feeling, Lord, we pray that we can put our hope in you and you will turn our sadness into joy and that we can find our heart content only in you this morning. We hand it over to you, Lord, whatever it may be, whatever's going on in our lives, and we give it to you in worship. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things.